0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now, the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. We'd like to note a possible change in policy here for the remainder of the year. If you've been a listener of this program for the last few years, and we hope you have been, you may have noted that. It's hard to get guests sometimes in November and December, and we've tended to concentrate shows that are just more in the news roundup genre. We're going to reverse that this year and see if we can't bring you nothing but guests between now and the first of the year, with, of course, the exception of today's program and maybe one or two others. But uh, we are looking forward in the months to come to bringing you Peter Dale Scott once again. Peter has a new book out, and um, thanks to a little reminder in my mailbox from Russ Baker, we note that uh, the new book. The American Deep State, Wall Street, Big Oil, and the Attack on U.S. Democracy, which is out uh, on the 12th of next month, is certainly uh, something we need to travel down to Berkeley to speak to Dr. Scott about. We'll do our best and see if we can't work into that. An interview with his good friend and associate, Daniel Ellsberg, who's been on our short list uh, for quite some time. We're also going to try and work on James Risen, who's done some wonderful work in the national security area. Ditto for Robert Perry. And no, we have not forgotten about uh, tracking down Tony Wheeler and talking about his wonderful books on travel. We're, we're still on the hunt for that. And if all goes well on next week's program, we'll bring you our long-promised uh, interview with Dr. James Fallon of UC Irvine, who has a thing or two to say about uh, what makes a psychopath. Dr. Fallon has come to believe that uh, his brain anatomy indicates that he, in fact, is one. You can bet that's going to be a curious conversation. We're also going to see if we can bring on some of our good pals here from KDVS, Dr. Andy Jones, Ed Martin, and Richard Estes, among others. And as the Kennedy assassination moves into uh, the history books and out of the field of current events, 50 years on, we're nevertheless going to stay on that topic next month with uh, what I think will be some interesting and provocative interviews with Dr. Gary Aguilar, Researcher James Di Eugenio and hopefully Robert Groden, who in 1975 almost single-handedly managed to get an investigation, an official investigation by the U.S. government into the Kennedy assassination, started by virtue of showing the Zapruder film on national television. The public, including numerous congressmen, had a hard time squaring what you see on film to what the official version of what happened was. And finally, we're going to close today's program with another anniversary plus one year. In this case, the 75th plus one makes 76th anniversary of the famous War of the Worlds broadcast by Orson Welles. We've we put together a look at that, uh, that event about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years ago, Mr. McMillan, and we've aired it three times previously. Today will be the fourth because, well, it's a segment we like, and it's not that long, and uh, tomorrow's Halloween. So what the hell? Let's start today's broadcast as we like to do with On This Date in History. Well, we've already touched upon Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds, so let's just hit a couple others. Our date in question, by the way, is the 30th of October. It was on October 30th in 1905 that Tsar Nicholas II, under pressure from the Russian Revolution of 1905, issued the October Manifesto, ending autocratic rule in favor of a constitutional monarchy and granting a range of civil liberties. On this date in 1974, and frankly, it seems like yesterday to this correspondent, American boxer Muhammad Ali scored an upset victory over George Foreman in eight rounds. The match, labeled the Rumble in the Jungle, was held in Zaire, which causes us to recall the interview after the event of Howard Cosell with Muhammad Ali, during which time Ali credited his victory to his novel strategy of leaning against the ropes. As I recall, he told Cosell, I call it the rope-a-dope, Howard. I lay against the rope and let the other man punch himself out. To which Cosell added, well, you've mentioned the rope. Who is the dope? To which Ali replied, "As whoever chased me in the rope, Howard. And one year later, October 30th, 1975, Prince Juan Carlos became Spain's acting head of state after Generalissimo Francisco Franco, the dictator of Spain since 1938, conceded that he was too ill to govern. In fact, on November 22nd, Juan Carlos would be crowned king. Juan Carlos, in fact, got himself in a little bit of political hot water recently, which we reported on this show some weeks back. And we don't have time to go into that again, but uh, for some comedy relief, check it out on the web. Our quote of the day comes from Alfred Lord Tennyson. And aren't we highbrow? He once said famously, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." which we tack on the quip by George Bernard Shaw, which is, there are two tragedies in life. One is to not get your heart's desire. The other is to get it. And our bonus quote quip, which I'm not sure we can endorse, comes from Dr. Joyce Brothers, who once said, trust your hunches. They're usually based on facts filed away just below the conscious level. Mr. McMillan's gut reaction to that one is that he's, well, he's just not so sure. Our joke today comes from the writers for David Letterman, who noted last week, New York City is overrun with rats. We have so many rats that today Mayor Bill DeBazio was on the live television asking every citizen here to make sure to have your rat neutered. Our stat of the week comes from Fortune.com and may explain why it is that people risk lengthy prison sentences for insider trading. Recent analysis concluded that typical insider trading bets on average, are $200,000. And by acting on the basis of illicit information, they reap roughly $72,000 in profit, a healthy gain of about 35%. And that's just over a few weeks. And noted fortune.com, that notorious left-wing publication, just like organized crime groups, insider trading rings tend to be closely linked by family and friendship ties, with 74% of insider pairs having known each other since childhood. And our good news of the week is that Indian vultures are making a comeback. Yes, as reported on Radio Parallax a few years back, the use of veterinary diclofenac, better known to you and me as Voltaren, was killing vultures off when they would feast upon uh, the carcasses of animals that had been given Voltaren. It caused kidney failure. They died. As a result, vulture populations in India plummeted by more than 99% since the 1990s. But as they've switched to vulture-safe medications, they're now coming back. Mr. Miller notes that the Parsis of India will be glad to hear this. The Parsis migrated to India from Iran. They practiced the religion of Zoroastrianism. And it is their habit to deal with the dead by placing them up in towers so that the bodies are eaten by vultures. So when India's vulture population plummeted, well, this caused some problems. We hope the animals make a comeback and that Parsi funeral processes can resume. All right, we hope that uh, you took in the eclipse of the sun last week. Nowhere on earth did they get a total eclipse, but lots of places got a pretty cool partial eclipse, including... North America. I fortunately had some proper welding glass from my previous eclipse-chasing episodes and was able to see it quite well, and noticed that there appeared to be a rather large sunspot visible. And scientists have now confirmed that, in fact, the largest sunspot group in the last 20 years is currently on the face of the sun, and getting frisky, apparently sending out some solar flares, possibly to be followed by a coronal mass injection, which might light up our auroras across planet Earth. Fortunately for astronauts in the space station, uh, the sunspot group is currently not pointed directly at the Earth, so if there is a solar flare, they hopefully won't get uh, a lot of extra radiation. In other celestial events, uh, we note that that uh, comet that whizzed past Mars last week should produce some interesting photographs. When it was discovered last year, initial measurements suggested that it might hit Mars on the 19th of October. It did not do so, but passed closer to Mars than the moon is to the Earth, giving some of our probes orbiting and also on the surface of the planet a ringside seat. I'm I'm figuring that NASA and the European Space Agency have not yet uh, produced some of the photos due to some needs to processing them. That's what I'm figuring. And we hope, dear listener, that you go out sometime in the uh, not-too-distant future to check out the night sky. The winter constellations are quite prominent late in the evening, and placed among them is Jupiter, the king of the planets. It looks very cool. And also means that for bumper music on this segment, we're going to go out with Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. Even though that means that nothing we'll do for the rest of the show or nothing that will be played on this station for the rest of the evening or, for that matter, the rest of the week, or probably, for that matter, any radio station <laughs> locally for the rest of the week can equal. Because if you think you've got a piece of music that's better than Mozart's uh, 41st Symphony, you need to either put away the bong, cork up the Jack Daniels, Or maybe just throw away the crack pipe. I don't know. You know, it might be a good time to mention that our opinion on Mozart, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Uh On that note, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh Uh All right, according to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for eating local, sort of. With the news that, in a slap at the United States, Russian health officials have shut down nine McDonald's in Moscow, including the flagship Pushkin Square location, which was the first ever to open in the Soviet Union. At least 200 more of the chain's restaurants in Russia are being investigated for possible health violations. These inspections began soon after the U.S. imposed sanctions on Russia for its annexation of Crimea and support for separatist rebels in Ukraine. Do you suppose there's a a link there? We would have to say da, or in English, duh. And it was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for public art, with the news that in Paris, a public art installation was destroyed by vandals after critics noticed that it resembled a large sex toy. Tree, by artist Paul McCarthy, was an 80-foot-tall inflatable sculpture. For his part, McCarthy didn't deny that there was a resemblance to a sex toy, but said the offending object, quote, was more of an abstraction, unquote, suggestive of a Christmas tree. Many Parisians, however, argued that its lewd presence, quote, humiliated, unquote, the city, and a group of them attacked tree with sharp objects until it was left deflated on the ground. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for divorce court, with the news that a court in Dubai granted a man's request to end his marriage when his wife's parents admitted that his new bride was in fact possessed by a genie, better known in the West as genie. The husband had claimed that the genie had commanded his wife to repeatedly refuse intercourse with him. We here at Radio Parallax believe there's more to the story, but we intend to waste no resources ferreting it out. Yes, I'm going to thank you, Mr. Millen, for airing that piece of music, which of course will remind all the jihadists of the world of the 1960s I Dream of Genie" television program, which we kind of think did not get the Islamic legend quite right. All right, we're going to talk about uh, the upcoming election a bit in our second segment. We find the candidates' races pretty mournful. But do want to note, in the the wake of Republican Neil Kashkari trying to unseat Jerry Brown in the governor's chair and and railing at uh, Jerry Brown's crazy train, that uh, while we still, in fact, lack high-speed trains here in the United States of America, over in Japan, they celebrated a few weeks ago the 50th anniversary of the bullet trains which go from Tokyo to Osaka. Yes, folks, 50 years ago, the Japanese put high-speed trains into service. A half-century later, the good old US of A has yet to do so. Do you think perhaps this has anything to do with that coalition that formed back in the 30s between the auto manufacturers and the tire manufacturers and the oil producers to buy up America's mass transit infrastructure and then rip it out? We suspect the answer may again be, duh. Right, in the past few weeks, we've been talking about what happened to Gary Webb back in 1996 when he revisited the story which had come to light in the 1980s about the link between drug trafficking and arms trafficking when it came to CIA, and other efforts against the Nicaraguan Sandinista regime. What impressed me at the time, and still impresses me, is the fact that Webb did not originate the story. He was just doing some follow-up on it. So I'm always surprised when something hits the front page news as if it were fresh news, even though it's been known for some time. And case in point, Monday's Sacramento Bee, page one. Article reprinted from the New York Times by Eric Lichtblau with the headline, U.S. Hired 1,000 Nazis as Spies in Cold War. I can remember listening to tapes by Dave Emery, I think on Pacifica Radio, talking about the Galen Org back uh, in the early 90s. And I think it was kind of old news then. But at any rate, according to these fresh headlines from the New York Times and Sacramento Bee, Turns out at the height of the Cold War, law enforcement and intelligence leaders like J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI and Alan Dulles at the CIA aggressively recruited one-time Nazis of all ranks as secret anti-Soviet assets. Now, there have been some recent documents declassified shedding yet more light on this, which I guess is what generates the, the headline. But to excerpt from the piece... In 1994, a lawyer with the CIA pressured prosecutors to drop an investigation of an ex-spy outside Boston implicated in the Nazis' massacre of tens of thousands of Jews in Lithuania, according to a government official. The piece notes that thousands of records from declassified files, Freedom of Information Act requests, and other sources, together with interviews with scores of current and former government officials, show that the government's recruitment of Nazis ran far deeper than previously known, well, at least known to the public, and that officials sought to conceal those ties for at least a half century after the war. In 1980 FBI officials refused to tell even the Justice Department's own Nazi hunters what they knew about 16 suspected Nazis living in the United States. The Bureau balked at requests from prosecutors memo show because the 16 men had all worked as FBI informants providing leads on communist, quote, sympathizers, unquote. We may want to do a whole show on this sometime in the future, but again, to quote from the piece, in Maryland, army officials trained several Nazi officers in paramilitary warfare for a possible invasion of Russia. Yes, that's right. After witnessing how well the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union went, the U.S. intelligence people thought, who better to hire than to Nazis to explain to us how it is we might want to invade Russia? You following this so far? Because I'm having trouble. Notes the piece. In Connecticut, the CIA used an ex Nazi guard to study Soviet block postage stamps for hidden messages. I'm sure that was a very productive use of your tax dollars. In Virginia, a top advisor to Hitler gave classified briefings on Soviet affairs. Notes the piece, many Nazi spies proved inept or worse. Some were deemed habitual liars, confidence men, or embezzlers, and a few even turned out to be Soviet double agents. God, Nazi officials? You're kidding me. Who would have imagined that they would be less than reliable? Dear listener, you should go on the web and check out the Galen Org and other uh, materials related to this. I think it's pretty fair to say the government has still not told us the truth about some of its intelligence efforts back in the Cold War. Or more recently, how about this piece from the New York Times, which I just cannot believe how this is being reported. article by C.J. Chivers in the New York Times noted last week that back in 2008, a controlled explosion by U.S. weapons disposal experts had unearthed several old Iraqi artillery shells, one of which was leaking. Turned out that the soldiers, in fact, were exposed to mustard gas. According to the article from 2004 to 2011, U.S. soldiers found about 5,000 rusting and degraded chemical warheads and shells dating back to the Iran-Iraq conflict in the early 80s. At least 17 soldiers who handled these canisters of nerve agents suffered damage ranging from hand-sized blisters to long-term breathing problems. But the Pentagon and Bush administration swore soldiers to secrecy and never revealed the weapon's discovery. Personally, I think this may go a long way toward explaining Gulf War Syndrome, which came out of the first Gulf War in the early 90s. A lot of people think our men and women got exposed to chemical agents as part of the disposal process, leading them to get very ill afterwards. Chris, what's most enraging about this story is that uh, knuckleheads like DeRoy Murdoch, nationalreview.com, have said, we finally have proof about weapons of mass destruction. For years, the howling hyenas of the left have claimed that President Bush lied about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, but this investigation confirms that the Iraqi dictator did have weapons of mass death and that the U.S. was correct to invade Iraq, find these toxins, and destroy them. To which we have to say, no... Writing more in the realm of reality, we have Simon Malloy in Salon.com, who said, If these weapons really were the Casus Belli, wouldn't Bush, Dick Cheney, and Rove have shouted it from the rooftops? They had claimed a massive invasion was necessary to stop Saddam's active program to build weapons of mass destruction, not to find aging canisters produced with U.S. help in 1980 when he was fighting Iran. And we might cite a more reputable conservative view from W. James Antle, writing in AmericanConservative.com, who asked, Why are some of my fellow conservatives trying to hang a second mission-accomplished banner around Bush's neck? For political reasons, Bush covered up the exposure of our soldiers to these weapons and never had all the warheads properly removed and destroyed. As a result, some of them are still intact in areas now controlled by the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. If this is vindication, i hate to see what failure looks like. And we're sorry to note that it has been confirmed from Mexico that the the bodies found in the mass grave outside of Iguala, Mexico, indeed are not the lost 43 students feared murdered by local police. I think this, again, speaks to the catastrophe that uh, the war on drugs has been, especially for the state of Mexico. You need to do some follow-up at some point about that conviction of the Blackwater mercenaries that were in Iraq and killed all those civilians. They actually were convicted, contrary to a lot of people's expectations. Found an old piece by Richard Estes in Because People Matter, titled The Privatization of American Foreign Policy, and I think Richard might be the perfect guy to do a follow-up story on that with. Also found a little blurb from the Los Angeles Times relevant to our uh, Gary Webb coverage, which I think I'll just quote from. After a year-long investigation described as the most intensive in its history, the CIA has completed a report declaring it was not responsible for introducing crack cocaine to Los Angeles. Former CIA Director John Deutsch, who launched the investigation, said, I think it's very professional and is thorough and convincing. As we talked about with uh, Jim D'Eugenio on last week's program, uh, you know, it's a bit of hair-splitting to say the CIA was not responsible for introducing crack cocaine. If you're looking the other way, while massive amounts of crack cocaine are coming into the U.S. to fund your war efforts in Nicaragua, are you not indirectly responsible for the crack cocaine epidemic? What do you think, Mr. McMillan? And in some follow-up on the case of what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, we have this. Note of the week, an official autopsy of Michael Brown by the St. Louis County Medical Examiner's Office indicates that the 18-year-old was shot at close range in the hand, suggesting that the black teenager may have been reaching for Ferguson police officer Daryl Wilson's gun during their fatal altercation. Other forensic evidence puts Brown's blood inside of the officer's vehicle, indicating, as police sources have claimed, that there was a struggle that took place there before the subsequent shooting. Did Michael Brown attempt to wrestle the gun away from the police officer before he himself was fatally shot? Well, that's what those autopsy results suggest. We'll continue to follow that one. We got to take a break in a minute here, but I don't want to end on a downbeat. So um, let's go out with this item. Noted The Economist last month. People with back pain are known for their grouchiness, and it's not helped if they're also starved for sex. Well, I think that goes without saying. Magazine noted that although sex makes serious demands on the spine, no one has taken the time until now, I guess, to study how different sexual positions can accommodate different back problems. But thank God Stuart McGill and Natalie Sudorsky at the University of Waterloo in Canada rose to the challenge. They brought 10 heterosexual couples with healthy spines into the lab and asked them to have sex using five randomly assigned intercourse positions. Volunteers were then observed while standing straight, bending forward, extending backwards, bending to each side, and twisting at the waist. When the data was crunched, the researchers found that contrary to popular belief, spooning was not a good idea for men with bending-induced lower back pain. Nor was a variant of the missionary position with the man supporting himself on his elbows. Turns out holding himself up with his arms extended was a more spine-sparing option along with what was described as one of the doggy variants. I'm sure you can go online for more details. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's go out with a little bit of Mozart before we come back and talk about our current election controversies.